Before we get started today, I'd like to ask you to take a moment to fill out our listener survey. We want to learn more about you and what you think of this podcast. So if you would, please go to our website, www.speakingofpsychology.org, and look for the link to our listener survey. We'd really appreciate it. Now on to the episode. What does retirement look like now? Forget the stereotype of a goodbye party in the break room followed by endless days on the golf course or sitting in front of the TV. Instead of an abrupt and permanent exit from the workforce, today's retirement often unfolds slowly over time as people move in and out of post-retirement jobs. This shift, along with an aging population, is reflected in U.S. workforce demographics. Nearly one quarter of U.S. workers are older than 55, and the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts that the number of workers older than 75 will almost double by 2030. So what do these shifts mean for modern retirement? How has the rise of remote work and the gig economy changed the way people plan for and experience retirement? How does retirement and post-retirement work affect people's mental, physical, and emotional health? If you're close to retirement yourself, what questions should you be asking to determine whether it's the right time to cut the cord? And if retirement is still years away for you, what should you do now to set yourself up for a happy retirement in the future? Welcome to Speaking of Psychology, the flagship podcast of the American Psychological Association that examines the links between psychological science and everyday life. I'm Kim Mills. My guest today is Dr. Mo Wang, a university distinguished professor at the Warrington College of Business at the University of Florida. He is also the Associate Dean for Research and Strategic Initiatives, Chair of the Management Department, and Director of the Human Resource Research Center. Dr. Wang is an industrial organizational and developmental psychologist whose work focuses on retirement as well as older worker employment. He was the editor of the Oxford Handbook of Retirement and is currently editor-in-chief of the journal Work, Aging, and Retirement. Dr. Wang, thank you for joining us today. Oh, thank you very much for having me. I'm really glad to be here. Well, let's start by exploring the idea that I just mentioned in the introduction, which is that for many people, retirement is no longer an abrupt end to their working life, but more like a slow process of transition. There's a term that you and other researchers use for that, which is bridge employment. How common is bridge employment these days, and what does it look like for most people? Oh, so bridge employment... Um simply just means um, people uh, after they retire, they still uh, engage in some paid activities, um, uh, paid work activities. Um, and uh, uh, it's actually pretty common. So uh, in the early, in the 90s and the early 21st century, uh, we see about like a half of the retirees uh, during retirement after they um, finish their career job, they would uh, engage in bridge employment. And actually before the pandemic, uh, near like 2016 to 2018, we see actually two out of the three retirees were engaged in um, bridge employment before they fully retire. Uh, so the general trend is people actually are, are taking more and more um, 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 bridge employment opportunities over time. Uh, however, pandemic uh, actually uh, made a, a big difference. Uh, so uh, we see actually um, people who retired during the pandemic years, uh, the, the actually bridge employment rate, so the, um, the coming back to the uh, work kind of um, probability decreased 
a little bit. Uh, so uh, that's actually one of the reasons we're experiencing labor force shortage right now. Um, so uh, if those uh, people come back uh, to uh, the pre-pandemic um, or, uh, bridge employment uh, activities, uh, then we actually uh, would have uh, more uh, labor force participation uh, in the whole population. So has the rise of the gig economy made it easier for people to find post-retirement jobs? I mean, are more people leaving the corporate world to become Uber drivers? Or is this a case of people needing money? I mean, what are the factors that are at play? Oh, so um, right now we don't have a very systematic research about uh, gig economy's impact on bridge employment. And there are some um, preliminary evidence showing that gig economy uh, does offer uh, autonomy uh, for uh, older uh, retirees uh, if they want to come back to labor force participation. Um, and uh, because gig economy uh, allows people uh, to actually choose when to work and allows people and to have a lot of uh, uh, autonomy in terms like uh, how to take the payment and uh, sometimes you also um, bypass uh, um, the tax situation. Uh, so um, yeah, so gig economy is generally considered to be uh, easier for older uh, workers or retirees to come back to the workforce. Um, but uh, um, a lot of time people are not really uh, working for the money, right? So especially when people retire and when they start to receive um, social sec security benefits, uh, actually um, pay may not be a, a very uh, important issue. Um, so a lot of time people uh, want the social environment for working, right? So they enjoy social relationships at work. Um, Sometimes uh, you may meet a, um, like a, a Uber driver uh, who's a, a little bit older and who may have retired, but they want to meet new people, uh, you know? So um, there are a lot of uh, different factors at work here and the pay is not necessarily the most important one. Is it more common for people to sort of wind down and maybe go to 50% on their current job or maybe come back in a consulting position where they used to work? Mm -hmm. uh, well, it mostly happened among people who had uh, higher levels of education, especially um, for people who had professional jobs. Uh, so then in that case, actually, this kind of phased retirement or the same organization um, bridge employment uh, happens uh, more often. So basically, um, people may gradually uh, cutting down their work hours, but still work for the same organization. Or people work for the same organization, but on a less demanding job roles. Like, for example, as you mentioned, advisory roles or consulting roles. Uh, so, but this happens a lot with professional jobs. Uh, we don't see it as much uh, for the uh, uh, more labor-intensive jobs. Now, a moment ago, we talked a little bit about the impact of the pandemic on how people are thinking about retirement. And I'm just wondering, are workers who have been able to work remotely more likely to delay retirement? Um, so the research evidence on this uh, is not conclusive yet. Uh, what we know is uh, when when organizations offer flexible working arrangement, they are more likely to keep their older workers. So older workers are less likely uh, to retire uh, if the organization allow them uh, to work from home, so, uh, such as uh, remote work, or organizations uh, allow them to select the uh, time uh, when they uh, 
do their work. Um, but uh, in general, we don't know whether remote work is uh, keeping people on their jobs or remote work may make people realize how great it is <laughs> to not be in the office. So, uh, so there's still some, uh, some uh, more research need to be done. Now, you and other researchers have studied how retirement affects people's physical and mental health and their well-being. Is retirement generally good for people's health or bad? Or what, what does it depend on? What are the factors that go into making a happy, healthy retirement versus one that isn't so happy or healthy? Well, this is a great question. Uh, so actually, we had uh, um, nationally representative data uh, to look into this issue. And uh, actually, uh, countering the typical belief that uh, retirement may be good or bad, actually, we found that for 70 to 75 percent of the retirees, retirement doesn't do a lot to their well-being. So people actually, uh, when they retire, uh, they were able to carry on. Uh, what they uh, experienced before, uh, they actually uh, were able to maintain their well-being status. So retirement doesn't, uh, to majority of people, retirement doesn't actually uh, create a, a, a bad situation for their well-being and the retirement does not uh, create a, a a super good situation for their well-being. However, uh, as you said, right, everything depends. So uh, we found that actually uh, for retirees who uh, retire from stressful jobs and very physically demanding jobs, actually retirement is a very good thing. So that's actually um, about uh, uh, like 5% of the workers. So when they retire, they actually experience a really good uh, uh, well-being improvement. Uh, from those stressful jobs. And then we also see about 20 to 25% of workers, uh, when they retire, uh, they actually experience some well-being decrease. Uh, and that's uh, usually um, because uh, they may uh, retire um, from a job that has higher status. Uh, they may retire uh, experiencing some financial difficulties, um, but also they may have uh, um, bad marital quality. So um, when they retire, actually, uh, the retirement becomes a very, uh, very difficult situation for them to manage and adjust. Um, so yeah, but in general, as I as I mentioned earlier, like a majority of workers, uh, when they retire, actually they are able to maintain their well-being situation, and the retirement is not gonna uh, have huge impact. Uh, to their well-being. What about people who identify so closely with their jobs? What happens to them if you're an attorney and then you walk away and you can't say anymore, I'm a lawyer because you're not really working in the field? What does that do to people's sense of self? Mm -hmm. uh, that's a very good point. So actually, uh, the work-related uh, identity is very important uh, for a lot of people in professional jobs. Uh, so actually uh, removing them from job or like uh, fully exit uh, their, uh, their job roles uh, is gonna create a negative impact uh, because of the, uh, the work-related identity actually synonymous with their self-identity. Um, so that's why actually bridge employment uh, can help. Right. So if you uh, keep doing some uh, some work as you done before retirement, uh, it helps you to ease into this uh, new uh, self identity of retire retirement, uh, and also uh, help you to adjust uh, to this uh, transition better. 
Well, speaking of adjusting to the transition, let me ask a question for our younger listeners who may feel like retirement is very far away. What what should they be thinking about right now? I mean, other than socking away money, how can they plan today for a good retirement that might be 30 years away? Mm-hmm. So I would say like uh, this is related to the career choice, right? So basically, uh, uh, younger younger workers, right? So they they may need to uh, think carefully about uh, what kind of career they will enjoy the most, right? And right as as I mentioned, right? So uh, if they if their job is very stressful, um, then actually they um, may not enjoy the job that much, and then and they. Uh, may actually uh, not do much uh, bridge employment or not much uh, um, pay the work activities uh, later on. And but then we know like that that is not good for them to um, keep their uh, time occupied and also uh, not good uh, for maintaining a productive uh, uh, life structure. Uh, so so actually um, find a job that you really enjoy helps a lot. Uh, so yeah, I would I would argue that uh, younger workers uh, need to know like what they like and also need to find a meaningful work, uh, so that then uh, when the time comes uh, to retire, they can actually transition through uh, with some bridge employment opportunities and then uh, into retirement feeling accomplished uh, for their career life. What about for people who are closer to retirement? What are the emotional and practical questions they should be asking themselves when they're trying to decide if the time is right to walk away? Oh, so um, there are um, several questions they should ask themselves. So first of all, like uh, uh, what they would like to do in retirement, right? So that's activity-related planning. Um, so um, basically, they need to consider, um, like, uh, without working, right, um, how can they be productive, right? So um, not everyone actually enjoy being productive, but uh, actually being productive is a human agency. So um, it gives us a sense of accomplishment. Uh, so it's actually um, pretty helpful uh, if you plan about that. And then, of course, you should plan about the uh, leisure activities, Right. So um, basically know what you like and then uh, how you would uh, enjoy those activities uh, when you retire. Right. So um, so but regardless of what you choose, uh, these activities can help meet needs that were once filled by their work. Right. So uh, like having uh, social interactions and the structured time. So that's the first thing, the activity. And the second thing is actually um, people should think about where they want to live. Right. So because uh, when we uh, enter the later stage of our life, uh, a lot of time we have uh, unique health uh, health care needs. Uh, we actually um, probably uh, where we typically live may not uh, be very accessible uh, for those kind of assistance. Uh, so actually um, think about where to live and can access, uh, you know, useful services uh, is very important. Uh, and then the third question is, um, how um, basically how you want to, uh, who you want to share retirement with okay so basically in retirement uh, more than just lifestyle changes actually relationships and one sense of self can change as well so oftentimes uh, we rely on our spouses uh, as a main area of focus like uh, for uh, spending retirement time uh, with but then also there are other relationships right so like uh, uh, children grandchildren um, parents friends or even like uh, uh, lovely neighbors right so um, 
So yeah, think about who you want to retire with, like uh, spend that time with uh, for retirement planning is very important. Now, you also study older workers and you've looked at what companies can do to attract and retain them. Why is it important for companies and organizations to think about this? What's the benefit of older workers? Oh, the, the issue is, especially in the United States, actually, uh, we know the workforce is aging, right? So, um, and we're not um, uh, really uh, enlarging our workforce that much. So keeping older workers uh, on jobs actually help us uh, to fulfill those job positions. Uh, so think about right now, like we have a big in, uh, inflation situation. And largely, this is because of a labor force shortage, right? So there are uh, way more jobs than actually there are supply of uh, uh, labor labor force. Uh, so actually keeping uh, older workers uh, in organizations help uh, meet the labor force demand. But also, older workers often had more experience, work experiences, and they... Um, have a lot more knowledge about the organization. So actually keeping all the workers uh, can keep the organization's productivity high uh, and also help passing the useful knowledge to the next generation. Uh, so, so that's why it's very important to keep all the workers uh, on their jobs. What about the notion that older workers not being digital natives are not able to keep up with changes in technology? I mean, mightn't that make them more of a burden than an asset in some workplaces? Well, actually, this is a myth. Um, so basically, uh, we say like older workers are not digital natives, um, but that's because when they were growing up, there were no such digital devices. Right. So basically, uh, like like a lot of older workers, uh, when they grew up, there were no iPhones. Right. There are may not even be computers uh, or like PCs. So actually, the key here is not like whether they grew up with the device or not. The key here is whether we offer sufficient training opportunities on using those devices. Actually, the uh, research actually points to like uh, for older workers, if you give them sufficient time, uh, they actually can go through those training pretty effectively. Uh, actually, their learning for the uh, digital technology uh, is as uh, efficient as uh, younger workers. Uh, so yeah, so here is a training opportunity issue uh, rather than you know the um, whether they grew up with it or not. So well, on behalf of older workers, I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you. You were quoted in an article last year about Target doing away with its mandatory retirement age for executives. And that used to be pretty common that big corporations had mandatory retirement ages. Does this reflect a a broader trend uh, a, away from mandatory retirement ages in general? And, and do you think that's a good thing? Uh, well, first of all, in the United States, because of the, uh, the ADEA law, actually mandatory retirement is generally um, illegal, right? So only for certain uh, occupations, actually mandatory retirement is legal. And then uh, the CEO job or high level paid executive job uh, is uh, an exception to that ADA law, uh, which allows the company board uh, to um, uh, include a mandatory retirement um, clause in the contract. Uh, so then when the CEO turned to 65 or 67, uh, they cannot stay on the job anymore. Um, but uh, we see a trend that this is uh, a lot more companies actually uh, uh, abolishing that kind of clause. Uh, why? Because actually uh, nowadays, uh, um, 
older uh, executives, like they probably have way better physical caring, uh, physical condition uh, than probably 50 years ago. Um, and uh, so uh, they are more capable of doing their work. And then also there's a lot more uh, technology assistance uh, that can help people accomplish their work. Uh, so actually, uh, I don't see uh, like whether there's a like arbitrary um, age that people should retire. Uh, so yeah, so basically, I think the trend will keep going as um, um, in the US, at least, like we already know, um, the, we already recognize mandatory retirement is not necessary. Right. And then in Europe, uh, uh, we see actually the mandatory retirement age kept being delayed. Uh, and uh, on the one hand, it re reflects that uh, workers are more capable and they can have longer work life. And then on the other hand, of course, there's a, a social institutional concern, which is uh, uh, if you want to keep a good retirement benefit, um, people may have to work a little bit longer uh, to recruit those um, benefits. Now, you mentioned Europe, and there's, of course, a big uh, dispute going on in France right now around uh, raising the retirement age from 62 to 64, which those of us in the U.S. find almost funny. But, I mean, there's a reason for it. The reason is that there's a, a huge infrastructure that um, pays people pensions and health care when, when they reach, reach that age. Um, mm -hmm. If it were more, maybe this is not a fair question, but, I mean, we don't have anything quite similar in, in the United States. I mean, if, if we had something like that, could, would you foresee that people would be likelier to retire sooner? For example, suddenly Social Security became so flush with cash that they doubled the payout that they were giving everybody. Then would we all leave our jobs? Wow, that's a really interesting point. Uh, so <laughs> I, I think uh, um, human nature would dictate that if we have abundant resources, of course, uh, we want to have more autonomy and uh, we may not want to uh, stay on the job uh, um, much longer, right? If Especially uh, if the financial resources uh, is um, available. Um, uh, so, but uh, I think the thing is that uh, everything you receive will have to be paid by someone. Right. So the retirement system is a pay-as-you-go system, So, which means the benefit we receive is actually paid by the younger generation. Right. So uh, we need to be very mindful about this, uh, which is uh, actually right now the, um, the supportive ratio is about a little bit more than two workers supporting one retiree. Okay. Unless um, there's a big population growth, like I don't think the retirement benefit uh, will be uh, continuing going better. Um, and the um, U.S. actually, the uh, support, support ratio is actually pretty stable uh, in the past 20 years. Uh, so there are some countries actually the support ratio keeps going down. Uh, it's uh, dangerously low, like, for example, like 1.3 workers uh, supporting one retiree. Then uh, everyone actually ended up uh, not having enough. Uh, benefits. Um, so yeah, so so I would say like uh, um, although we all want to receive more benefits, we need to be mindful like uh, not to add too much pressure to the next generation. Um, so in that in that case, uh, also like a U.S. Uh, uh, the uh, big job uh, uh, labor force, like a new addition to the labor force, is always immigrants. Uh, so yeah, so the Congress and the government should pay attention uh, to the Im immigration uh, reform uh, reformation and to see how we can keep supply uh, good uh, labor force. Now you worked on a report from the National Academy of Sciences that looked at generational differences in the workforce. 
And it seems that the upshot was that it's not really helpful to use generational differences as a frame for understanding workers' needs, things like categorizing workers as baby boomers or Gen X or millennials. Why is that not a useful way to think about workers' needs? Mm-hmm. Well, um, so we actually, as a committee, we reviewed uh, the uh, literature uh, in this area. And the, the uh, what we found is actually oftentimes uh, when you uh, categorize workers based on their generations, it just represents a, a, a covert way of age discrimination. Uh, it could be... Um, either discriminating older workers or discriminating younger workers, right? Because when we when we categorize um, people into different generations, uh, it allows us to say something like, oh, that's just a baby boomer, or that's just uh, like an X generation, uh, right? So, um, so uh, what we found was um, this kind of uh, categorization actually promotes stereotypes and also um, it, mainly resulted from uh, imprecise use of the terminology uh, in the popular literature. Okay, so, um, so, but then uh, it does not really inform uh, effective workforce management decisions. Uh, so uh, that's why in the report, we actually cautioned uh, the public that uh, to use those language uh, may be more harmful uh, than uh, efficient. Uh, and of course, um, after we reviewed the literature, we also found that scientifically, actually, uh, a lot of those research cannot really capture the generational differences. That's they intend to capture. Methodologically, they are uh, very flawed. Uh, so that's also scientifically a reason uh, we shouldn't uh, take those kind of differences too seriously. Let me ask you a question on a, a different topic. You also study how employers are using artificial intelligence in the workplace and hiring decisions. And there's a lot of talk about bias in AI, but are you actually hoping to find ways to use AI to improve fairness in hiring? I mean, can you talk about that a little bit? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. So, um, so uh, fairness in AI uh, is mainly uh, uh, created as a, as a research topic because we found that uh, to use artificial intelligence, uh, we're basically asking algorithm uh, to learn about existing data. However, existing data contains bias. Right. So when the artificial intelligence is learning about existing data, it actually learned about the human bias uh, in those contained in those data. Uh, so uh, what the result is that when you use artificial intelligence, uh, maybe it's very fast uh, to make a recommendation, or maybe it's very fast uh, to uh, help you make decisions. Um, but it also contains the human bias uh, that actually you have no way to identify. Right. Um, so, for for example, like if you're uh, if you're HR manager, you're trying to decide whether you want to hire an older worker, right? So you would caution yourself as, hey, I cannot have age discrimination when I make this decision. However, if you're using AI to make that decision, AI would just rely on whatever data it's learning, and you will know how AI made that decision. Right, so even so, correcting for it is a little bit harder. So that created this whole need uh, for research on fairness AI. Uh, so uh, the, my uh, recent research has been looking at, uh, given the current policy in terms of uh, EEOC has this uh, adverse impact ratio uh, criteria. Um, so how do we uh, make sure that our hiring decision is not favoring? Uh, 
when uh, one category of the population versus another category of the population. Uh, so it's a, it's a lot about finding out what AI is capable and finding out also how to avoid um, bias that is uh, embedded in the uh, algorithm. So, last question, just to wrap up, what what are the big issues that you're working on now? I mean, what would you like to have the answers to that you're studying today? Oh, so um, I'm recently uh, studying a lot uh, on the age and the technology use. So earlier we talked about this, right? So in terms of a digital natives or like uh, digital exclusion. So I'm looking at uh, how we actually uh, eliminate um, uh, the the issue of uh, digital exclusion. And so uh, the research actually uh, right now, what we found is actually digital ex exclusion often comes in uh, four different ways. Uh, one is the hardware exclusion, which is uh, uh, for older people, uh, it's a little bit harder for them to access the uh, most up-to-date, uh, the digital technology uh, in terms of devices. Uh, then the second form is actually the um, software uh, exclusion. So um, oftentimes uh, it is harder for uh, older workers or older um, people to track what's the most efficient uh, software to use. And uh, um, for example, on the phone, like what's the most efficient app to use, right? So that's the software dis uh, exclusion. And then the third one is actually more macro, which is uh, uh, exclusion in the form of information. So for example, uh, in terms of information and the infrastructure, right? So if the government uh, do not actually install those um, the fiber uh, optics uh, uh, equipment uh, for the uh, rural area, then it's very difficult for people living in that area to access information, right? So, and also we know like in some countries, like they have great firewalls that keep all the information out, right? So that's also a way of exclusion. And then the, uh, the last type is actually exclusion due to privacy concerns, right? So um, this is especially uh, important for older um, people because uh, oftentimes when we are uh, surfing on internet, when we use apps, uh, we're not aware that our privacy is um, being uh, being infringed on, right? Oftentimes we're asked to provide uh, information about ourselves, about our family, right? So, um, and those information can be used, you know, uh, in the uh, in in the in the in the cyberspace. Uh, so yeah, so uh, that's another form of exclusion, right? Uh, basically, it creates risk. Uh, for older people. Uh, so yeah, so uh, my recent research is really focusing on how to uh, uh, reduce uh, digital exclusion uh, for older workers and also for older people and to uh, use, uh, make sure those uh, digital technologies are used for their well-being uh, to create a better life uh, rather than actually creating risks uh, for, for them. Well, Dr. Wang, this has been really great. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. You can find previous episodes of Speaking of Psychology on our website at www.speakingofpsychology.org or on Apple, Stitcher, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review. And again, we'd like to hear from you about what you think of this podcast and what you'd like to hear more of from us. So please go to our website, www.speakingofpsychology.org and look for a link to the listener survey. If you have comments or ideas for future podcasts, you can email us at speakingofpsychology at apa.org. Speaking of Psychology is produced by Lee Weinerman. Our sound editor is Chris Kondayan. Thank you for listening. For the American Psychological Association, I'm Kim Mills. <laughs>